Welcome to the Sum of It All Universal Design for Learning podcast. I'm Audrey Mendeville, along with my colleague Mark Alcorn from the San Diego County Office of Education. And this season, we're exploring the third edition of UDL Now, a teacher's guide to applying universal design for learning by Katie Novak. Transcripts to our podcast are always available for you in the episode notes on your favorite platform. This episode, we are chatting about chapter six, firm goals and UDL implementation, the chapter we've been waiting for, Mark. Uh, for sure, Audrey. Um, you know, and I, I just think a best way to start off our conversation today is to jump on to the second page of the chapter, page 114. And Katie has a quote I'm going to pull out. It is learning from grade level appropriate curriculum is not a privilege. It's a right for all students. And um, Audrey, I just think that is the best way to kick off our discussion today. And I wholeheartedly agree with Katie on that. Yeah, absolutely. So I brought up an interesting story for her that she shares about a study in urban middle schools in Philadelphia. And she talks about how researchers studied the differences between these high performing uh, middle schools and these low performing middle schools. And they discovered a key difference when they asked the teachers and the other folks on campus students is like, um, how, like, how do you feel about teaching to the standards or how do you feel about teaching a standards based curriculum. And the high performing schools said like, that's just what we do. Like, they're kind of like, mm -hmm. what are you talking about? Like, that's mm -hmm. what we do. We're fine right. with it. It's our everyday thing. Right. And the low performing schools said things like our students aren't ready for it. They can't, our, their students lack of ability, like all of this deficit thinking around it. And the craziest thing was that the demographics of the schools were almost identical. And so like that expectation in terms of like what we believe our students should be doing turns into this right or privilege, like you're talking about, um, this like right. difference between the two of whether or not you actually get standards-based like material and curriculum. Yeah, great points, Audrey. And boy, that starts really young too. That could start in kindergarten. And I mean, really this idea that you're talking about is really presuming competence, right? Yeah. And and Audrey, I, I cannot go any further with talking about presuming competence without a big shout out to Andrew Gale. Yeah. Um, folks, right now, jump on Google and Google the ShadowCon video from NCTM 2018. Um, you might even just want to press pause on the podcast right now and jump over and watch it. I'm going to give a quick summary, but it's much better if you listen to him. Um, essentially, in that video, Andrew talks about when he was teaching, he had a student with multiple disabilities. And one of those disabilities was cerebral palsy. And for one day, the paraprofessional was somewhere else on campus. And Andrew was the only staff member with his class as they were transitioning from place to place. And they get to the door of the classroom and the student with cerebral palsy with that, that particular student is standing there with their cane. And he's kind of waiting for them to go through the door. And he says, well, you know, what are you waiting for? And the student goes ahead and uses their cane and, the, and their uh, body to get through the door. And around the corner comes the paraprofessional. And as Andrew tells it, there's this gasp um, as the paraprofessional is just like stunned that the student is going through the door. And here's the line that Andrew uses to end the story. He says that the paraprofessional said, for 11 years, I've been opening, opening doors for this student. And I never thought for her to do it for herself. And again, I recommend you listen to his version of the story, but Audrey, that story just never leaves me in terms of this idea of presuming competence. Yeah, I still get chills hearing that. Like there's, 
like we don't often see the ways that we are not presuming confidence of our students. And when it actually gets flashed in front of us, it's like this huge aha of like, of course they could do it. I don't know what I was thinking, like, but here I have been doing things unnecessarily um, that belittle their abilities and their confidence. So, um, you know, Katie Novak also introduces in this chapter, Shelly Moore, who has these series of YouTube videos called Five More Minutes, um, which are fantastic. I really enjoy them. Um, And I enjoy Shelly Moore's um, direct style of talking around issues. Um, But this one around presuming competence or the importance of presuming competence, she talks about like things that we need to consider doing um, and rethinking as educators. So like we need to increase our understanding of what it means to know. So like we need to broaden that understanding because we have such a narrow understanding of it. Sometimes we don't even understand our students have competence. if We just expanded it. Uh, we got to stop designing for deficit, right? We got to mm-hmm. stop opening the door. Essentially, we got to start saying like, you try first, you try to right. open the door. Right. Um, we don't have to make students prove that they can be able to learn in order to access learning. So I think that one was huge. She has some really interesting points in that. I highly recommend listening into that. Build on strengths, we talk about a lot, um, you and I, and then mm-hmm. encouraging all students to share their thinking in multiple ways. Um, and I think that that's, that's another one that we talk about, like the when we expand what it means to know and do, then we allow our students to show their brilliance. So super interesting. She also, uh, Katie also introduces two other folks or two, th- two other sets of folks, I guess, um, that have really interesting quotes around presuming competence. So there's um, Bicklin and Burkle, and their phrase is, take the most optimistic stance possible. Uh, I love that. Yeah. And then Anne Donnellan says, take, make the least dangerous assumption. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like between those two quotes, the most optimistic stance possible and the least dangerous assumption, like those are post-it notes now in my planning journal, but like I need to push myself each and every decision I make or in planning and designing learning experiences to do those two things in order to push myself to presume competence. Oh, I, I love that, Audrey. And it reminds me of something that I've been working with with my language in supporting teachers, which is this idea of over-supporting versus scaffolding. Um, I, I start to think about in my own lessons that I teach and people that I work with, like in this particular instance, are we over-supporting? Are we scaffolding? Because I, I think that we, we have the best of intentions around the work that we do. We say, this student is struggling. I need to help them. Um, but I think sometimes we, we err on the side of over-supporting versus a scaffold that is designed to be removed and for students to be able to um, be able to do something on their own. Yeah, I appreciate that. So this chapter says it's about goals, but very, very quickly, um, it gets into talking about standards. And Mm. in my mind, those are two different things. So I feel like we need to unpack a little bit here. Um, You know, the quote you started us off with um, a little bit earlier, a sentence earlier says, now you may be thinking your standards are too difficult for your students, but you have to work to change that mindset. And then learning from grade level appropriate curriculum is not a privilege, it's a right. So I agree, I'm all about standards-based instruction. I think that's super important, but what's the difference between standards and goals? Like, is it just whatever's written on the board? Can we take some time to unpack this a bit now that we're finally in this chapter, Mark? I am definitely ready. All right, let's do it. (laughs) We've been talking about this for a couple of chapters. So um, first of all, Audrey, I think we've got to back up for a second. Um, I want to talk about an overarching purpose, a goal, if you will, um, 
in terms of our instruction with mathematics, because um, I think that our all of our goals that we write for our lessons need to really be nestled underneath this overarching goal. And and I would I would I would propose that our overarching goal for students should be that they are making meaning of math concepts. Everything else that we do underneath that needs to be in service that of that overarching goal, where we have students that are thinking like that. That is what our goal is. Um, and I really think that we have to be careful because if we if we look at the type of things that we're putting in front of students and the things that are coming out of our mouths and the amount of time we spend speaking, we might be looking at trying to use UDL to support this idea of giving information to students. Um, and Audrey, you tweeted out about this recently, this, this whole notion of, are we just trying to UDL a lecture? Mm -hmm. uh, and if we are doing that, we might be finding all kinds of ways to sort of like, hey, lecture isn't the best way to give students information. So I'm gonna do it a different way. And we can have all kinds of choices to do that. However, we might be missing the forest through the trees. We might be realizing that we're not really headed toward that overarching goal of thinking. Um, so just one more shout out, Audrey, I feel like we're gonna do a lot of shout outs today. Rachel Lampert, if you're not familiar with her work, you need to, again, press pause <laughs> and get, and, and here's your Google search for, for Rachel. She has an article called Indefensible, Illogical and Unsupported countering deficit mythologies about the potential of students with learning disabilities in mathematics. And in this article, it really is about this idea of presuming competence and, and how, like, let's just dispel the notion that our students have to be protected from thinking in math classroom because they happen to have an IEP. Um, and so really to sum this up, Audrey, on pages 114 to 115, Katie says, this is an instructional failure, not a student deficit. And it's back to what you and I um, believe, which is our students are not broken. Yeah, fantastic reminder. But the instructional practices maybe are. So, yes. right, yeah. in that case, I hear what you're saying around like maybe the overarching goal is students are making meaning. And I think, you know, Peter Lilliadal in his book from season one would have said it's students thinking about math, right? Like there's this active, like, making sense thinking space that should be our overarching goal. Um, but how does that, can we get really into the nitty gritty between like <laughs> math standards and goals? Like, I feel like yeah. a lot of folks just kind of like blaze over this and say like, it's okay, put it up on the board. Students will be able to standard one point NF point, you know, whatever. Yeah, boy, that, that lesson, uh, that standard on the board thing just so took a life of its own, sort of like the same standard on the board for two weeks, because that's what's happening. And and, and, and Audrey, really, that's the first thing I think we need to get clear is the math standards when they were written, they're not written at the grain size of a lesson usually. I mean, sometimes they are, but it's actually less likely that a standard that you're having kids um, move toward is actually written at a, at the, a lesson level. So um, I think the other thing we need to talk about, especially here in California and many states across the country is we actually have two sets of mathematics standards. We have content standards and we have standards for mathematical practice or also known as SMPs. And the SMPs are the how that we want students to engage in content. And so, I mean, since the SMPs are the how, it's, it's really advantageous to look at the UDL guidelines and the SMPs and see what are the different things that we notice that are 
connections between those, overlap between those, because those are high leverage areas that we can really uh, support our students in their thinking. I agree with that, but now you're scaring me, Mark, because now I'm thinking <laughs> I have to have two math goals. And, you know, we in other spaces have discussed like having a language goal and a reading goal. Like, yeah. how are you talking about having a math standards goal and a math practice goal? Like, what, what are you saying here with that? Yeah, I mean, I think that's really important to think about. I think the other thing with goals that that I, I really have found out over the last few years is that in mathematics or any content area, the goal has to be measurable by the end of the lesson. And I mean, what we're talking about in the foundation of UDL is it should be something that is visible enough that students can track their progress as they are going through the lesson. Um, but I mean, here's the, here's the big uh, caveat though. When we give students a goal, and this gets to your question, if we give students a goal that is gonna rob them of the inquiry that they're going to, that we intend for them to engage in, putting that on the board or saying it out loud or whatever we do uh, is not a good idea. So um, that's why one of the things that I've been doing with teachers across San Diego County uh, and in lessons that I've been privileged enough to teach is to thinking about how that standard for mathematical practice could be something that we can use as a goal. If we have our uh, task aligned to standards, and then we can think about what that goal could uh, look and sound like. Okay, so it's not two goals, I hear that. It's not something that robs students of thinking. Um, there's a uh, tie here to the task you're putting in front of kids. It has to be measurable. So can we get into the weeds? Like what would, <laughs> what would this look and sound like? Yeah, yeah, for sure, Audrey. So let's just say that we, we, we talked before about this idea of a high quality task, something that is something that is gonna lend itself to students doing the thinking rather than a teacher delivering the thinking from the front, right? Mm -hmm. So if we have this high quality test that's already aligned to a content standard, we've done that work, then we could actually make a goal around these standards for mathematical practice. Um, so let's, let's get really practical, Audrey. Let's talk mm -hmm. about example. Um, so uh, we have the standard around uh, finding the area of a triangle. Uh, and um, in many cases, I don't know about you, but I can remember back to uh, a long time ago where I had these little uh, index cards where I wrote all my formulas down and tried to say oh, them yeah. over and over to myself. Remember yeah. that? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then when I started teaching and thinking about the practices with that particular content, I'm thinking like, wow, that's something kids can bump into. Mm -hmm. So for example, I'm, I'm teaching area of a triangle. And if my goal for students is around SMP number seven, and that standards for mathematical practice is look for and make use of structure. If I reveal that goal at the beginning of the lesson, and I don't tell them we're finding the area of, of, of a triangle necessarily yet, but we're in our lesson, we're going to look for and make use of structure. As kids start looking at rectangles, and thinking about what the area of a rectangle is and what if we cut it in half, what would that area be? That goal that I'm keeping track of as a student is a round structure. And I can think about that structure of the triangle and how it fits into the structure of a rectangle. So that thinking actually supports my students because I'm engaging in a practice of a mathematician, but it also allows me to make sure that I'm thinking about something that is the goal for the day, which is also very closely tied to a big idea. So that's, that's an example in kind of upper elementary, early middle school, Audrey, 
Um, do you, based on what I'm saying, does any of that make sense? And can you think of like secondary examples that you would give? Yeah, it's a great question. So I appreciate how you took that apart. And I'm thinking that if we were focused still on SMP7 looking mm -hmm. for making use of structure, that okay. a lot of the function work that happens in high school mathematics, mm -hmm. regardless of whichever pathway or sequence you're taking, is that students are making sense of all the different ways um, functions can be represented, like graphically in a table of values and an equation in a situation. Um, and then shifting those functions, like the parent functions and how the other ones shift. And so I can I can totally imagine um, some of those very long-winded standards, which are, like you said, not a lesson length. They're a series of lessons and maybe even a unit's worth of stuff. Right. Um, that instead, you might write a goal around looking for and making use of structure um, inside of a particular kind of function, right? And that that would then push on in the task the ability to look for different representations and also um, look for different ways that we transform kind of the original function or the parent function around it. So I'm starting to, I'm starting to get what you're saying. Um, and I think that we have to be careful around what words we put up that then would give away the thinking that you talked about earlier, right? So I heard you, you didn't say like, I'm gonna use structure to get the area from the front triangle. Right, like that's right. not, that's right. too much, Good right? Point. We've, we've yeah. done too much of telling our kids what they're gonna do. And we need to go back to like, let me push you into that, how you're gonna investigate as a mathematician. And I'm gonna rely on my task that's aligned to those standards and to those outcomes um, to push our students into the specific content. Yeah, yeah, for sure, Audrey. And I, I just think a, a thing worth like emphasizing at this point of our conversation is the thing that's really wonderful about UDL is it really makes a solid case for that we need goals as part of the work that we're doing daily with students. And I think that has huge implications of how we measure their learning along the way. Um, you know, if it's a narrow skill, like how do students assess themselves along the way? Like if it's something just around a procedure, it ends up being like, did you get all four problems that the teacher gave you correct at the end of the lesson? Well, yes, you did it, you know, you did it okay. Um, so I think that like that isn't really measuring learning. And it's, it's certainly not engaging for me and, and interesting for me to pursue that goal on my way to the end of the lesson. Yeah, I hear that. And I also am seeing these ties back to this idea of expert learner that we talked about in the last couple of chapters, right? Like expert learners need to know what they're learning and why. And we have ah. to provide them that autonomy to then look at the gap between where they are currently and where they're going and analyze are they making progress right which is also like the foundation for all formative assessment for the teacher so like it helps both both people it helps the teacher assessing progress and it helps the student assessing progress um and so i hear that like those goals are absolutely critical in, in us being able to then articulate and look at how we're making progress um towards being an expert learner so with all that said how do we how do we activate this? Like, how do we make this a reality in our classroom besides just the goal writing? Yeah, it, it's a good question, Audrey. I think it is worth going back to a previous point we've made, which is like, what are we UDLing, if that's a word, right? Like, are are we UDLing the U understanding of math concepts, or are we trying to UDL the replication of procedures? So again, some of the triggers for me are when there's songs, cute phrases, flashcards, hints or tricks. Not all the time, and I'm not saying none of those have a place, absolutely not. But sometimes those are, are to me, cover for, quote, 
we don't want you to think about this too deeply. That's the way I would say it. Like we need to give you, it's back to presumed confidence. Like we do not think that you can get into the depths of understanding how regrouping works. And so we're going to ask you to go next door and borrow, borrow a, a 10, <laughs> you know, that type of thing. That sits with me, Mark. Like that's, there are so many times I was like, just memorize this, just recall this, just do this. And you're right. Each one of those is hitting at, am I presuming confidence of my students to make meaning and understanding of it? So oh, now I'm going to have to think about that some more. Yeah, I, I, it, it's an ongoing struggle. This is, this is messy work. So I, I hope our listeners don't think that this is something that you could just wake up in the morning and do. It's just something we think about daily. But I think, I think the, the effort toward this particular goal as us as professionals is, is very worthy and our students will be the beneficiaries of it. Um, Audrey, you know, what about the chart on, on 129? Um, you know, as we get into this idea of supporting students, in mathematics and this idea of scaffolds and and so forth. I'm wondering if we take a look at Katie's examples uh, on 29. That the title of this chart is examples of three different types of scaffolds. And again, we've talked before about how sometimes in the examples in universal design for learning tend to seem to reside in the English language arts um, type of uh, background, and examples tend to lend themselves to that. So I think it'd be interesting maybe if we took a couple things out of this chart and said, what about mathematics? Yeah, I, I, let's. So one that stuck out to me is under linguistic and it talks about um, issue written and verbal instructions for activities. And if you had talked to me prior to our season one, I would have been like, of course, like I put it on the doc cam, I write it on the board, they have a worksheet and I read them aloud. And then I read Peter Lilliedal's book around building thinking classrooms. Mm -hmm. And I think this goes back to what you're talking about. Like, what are we trying to fix in the, before that, I would have said we were trying to fix my traditional teaching, right? Traditional right. teaching, teachers giving you a task. I expect you to act a certain way with it. I expect you to do certain things with it and you need a student in which case reading the instructions and having them visually pre prepared for students is absolutely a great scaffold. But what if we're not trying to scaffold the uh -huh. old way of teaching math, right? right? right. What if yeah. we're trying to build a thinking classroom? Uh -huh. What would that scaffold look like? And mm. Peter's research says you don't have it written. You just yeah. verbally give it. And I remember that episode, you and I just talking about it and being like, really? Is that <laughs> really true? Like there's so many things to push back at it. But the crazy thing is, is that I was not presuming competence of my kids. I was assuming that each and every single one of them needed to be spoon fed each and every word. And the reality is, is that's not how we communicate most of the time, most of the world in most languages, right? We get right. the essence of what's happening. And his research showed that you only need like 20 to 30% of the room to have some idea of what's happening before it just saturates and it goes bonkers, like everyone's good with it and can like make meaning of it. And so I just have to be reminded that like, I tend to over scaffold. I want to give everyone the yeah. supports they need ahead of time, just in case. And the reality is strip that one away. You don't need to do it. Read that chapter of Peter's book. Um, you yes. might be surprised. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Audrey, you reminded me of a phrase that I try to live by when I teach a lesson and uh, I fail just like everybody else at times. And which is what is the least amount of work that I need to do 
before my students actually get the task. Yeah. Because I, like you, I have aired so much. I'm like, I can't give this to them yet. Yeah. They're, they're not ready. I need to say this, 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 this. Um, But I have to be honest with you, Audrey, in all my years of teaching, I rarely air, I rarely had a task bomb when I gave it to them too quickly. Yeah. It it was always, I always aired the other side, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Totally. So, and that, that whole thing that we're talking about right now uh, reminds me of one of the things in the, in the chart here. So under the conceptual column, um, Katie mentions performing modeling using I do, we, we do, you do. Um, and uh, as I think about mathematics, um, it kind of seems backwards mm-hmm. to what we're attempting to do in mathematics. And, and in, again, in another season, uh, we were talking about Kathy Seeley's book, of course. Um, and Kathy has a wonderful uh, lesson or uh, chapter in her particular book that switches that around as, as a possible, as we switch our sort of old fashioned traditional teaching to this idea of kids thinking uh, is, as I said, uh, what's mentioned here is I do, we do, you do. And she flips it around and says, you do, then we do, then I do. In other words, that, that, that summarizing at the end, that way of pulling things together can be done by the teacher. And I love one of the moves that she mentions in that chapter, which is if you're just starting this work, just take the lecture that you were going to give at the, at the beginning of the lesson and just bring it to the end mm-hmm. and give the kids task a little bit sooner, which, which is what we're talking about. And, and isn't that about presuming con- competence? It is. It is exactly. I appreciate that. Well, so, one of the, oh yeah, please. So I was going to say like, she offers a couple other ideas in this chapter. Um, do you want to, I know if we're going to get into choice boards next chapter, I see uh, yeah. the writing on the wall. Is there <laughs> any thoughts that you had about that from this chapter before we close up for today? Well, you know, the, the one other thing is I do want to get to, back to S&Ps for a, a second, Audrey, because, um, you know, I, I mentioned that idea of, of having an S&P as a goal or part of an S&P or using an S&P to inform a goal. Um, but I, I really think we need to make sure that we think about this idea of how barriers connects to all of that, because I think a lot of times, and you said it earlier, is like we talk about these things that kids can't do that. And that's why they can't do the grade level work because they can't do this. I think we're asking the wrong question. I think we should be asking the question is, how can we, how do we remove barriers to our students engaging in the standards for mathematical practice? Mm. Like that's the how of what we want kids to do during math class. So like, shouldn't we be thinking, what are the barriers of them actually engaging in those practices? Because I think sometimes what we do is we might pull a small group and we might work with them on the content and then we push them back out into partnerships or, or groups, but they don't learn how to be better about engaging in standards for mathematical practice because we are so fixated on content and not necessarily the practices. That's a great point. So um, one of the things I appreciate um, about, again, we're bringing in all kinds of other authors this week. Um, <laughs> right. Brene Brown, who's one of my people I follow with as a fan, um, she talks about painting it done and that we need to be, um, that clear is kind, that when we sh- tell students and other folks like what it should look and sound like when you get there, um, that that is a, is a super awesome strategy for clarifying expectations. Um, and, and so in this chapter, Katie does unpack rubrics. Um, and I think there's a place for rubrics to be that painting it done for students. Um, I just, I would love to, 
we don't have the time today, but I would love to just say like my journey as an educator, if you look at the early rubrics I did where I mimicked um, what I saw some of my ELA colleagues doing and I tried to make it work into math, there was a lot of usually and kind of and sometimes and always language that was really not um, clear. And so it wasn't very kind. And so I really appreciate that Katie provides some other options of rubrics here and also includes even the one point rubric, which yeah. I am a huge fan of. Right. First heard about it from Jennifer um, uh, Gonzalez, I believe, who does the podcast of Cult of Pedagogy. I oh, yeah. right. right. Um, that she talked about one point rubrics and thinking about this idea of like, let me tell you what it will look like when you got there. And then the rubric is there to say here, on the left side or the, you know, I could write here are the ways you didn't quite get there yet. So go back and revise. And here on the right side is evidence of how you did capture this. And I'm so excited. Like you should be proud of yourself type of thing. So yeah. like, I appreciate that there's some really practical tools in this chapter as well. Um, and both thinking about how are we um, really rethinking some of, some of this for our students. Yeah, for sure, Audrey. Well, Audrey, as I'm thinking back to this last few minutes here, as we've been talking, we've talked a lot about a lot of things in this episode. Um, and the idea of goals has just so many connections to other things, doesn't it? So mm -hmm. like, Audrey, if you, if you could sum up the important points uh, for our listeners, like as they walk away from this episode, I wonder what those would be. Uh, can I do that all quickly? Um, I'm gonna say presume competence. I'm gonna say we have all have work to do yeah. around learning to presume the competence of our students. Mm -hmm. uh, if we are gonna make one change in our teaching practices, in our leadership practices, with working with teachers, whatever your role is, like I would say, it's a movement towards presuming confidence. Um, but if you're already awesome at that, if that's <laughs> something that you feel like you've nailed, you got that done, then I think this work around crafting goals that are measurable, for both the student and the teacher lens, right? But that don't give away the learning um, is that thing that we're gonna need to continue to finesse as we kind of move forward as educators. Great. Thanks for joining us for this episode. We are really looking forward to our next episode about chapter seven, unpacking choice and voice. Until then, send us a tweet with the hashtag SumMathChat. That's hashtag S-U-M-M-A-T-H-C-H-A-T with your questions and thoughts. We'll keep the conversation going there. Until then, best wishes on rethinking our practices. <music>